I'm Michael Shaw. And I'm Michelle Walter. And this is The Climate Crisis. This particular phase that we're now in is especially disturbing. It's a very difficult time. It's the hardest time of my life. And I would dare say it's probably the most threatened time for life on planet Earth since humans have been on this Earth. We have basically cascading crises and they're intersecting like a Venn diagram. They're intersecting and each causing the other to go more exponentially fast. And any sensitive being is going to have to be feeling it, right? Even if it's, even if it's subliminal, even if it's something you don't want to think about, don't want to look at, it's knocking on your door here in Australia. How could we not notice? We're not even through this summer yet, right? So how does a sensitive heart bear this and still keep feeling, still keep letting it in? How? That was the voice of Catherine Ingram speaking last night from her talk keeping your cool in a world on fire in, at the Corumban Echo Village. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you and, both. And the question you pose is just so pertinent, I think. How do you stay open in these times when so many things are going on? How do we keep our hearts open? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to accept that there will be a lot of grief in this, that we will have tears through this. So the more we keep open our hearts, the more it will hurt. Um, and yet, what else can we do? Denial is a very costly proposition. And in fact, I watch people who are in varying forms of denial. They're dancing as fast as they can, trying to keep out a, a juggernaut of, you know, a, a rolling um, ball of fire actually, uh, from their awareness. You basically have to close down from looking at any news yes. or talking to your neighbors or reading the cover of the this week's Echo, which, thank goodness, our hero, Hans Lovejoy, keeps everybody's feet to the fire and does an amazing job. Here's the, here's the uh, headline, Green Counselors Push High Growth Agenda. Green counselors in this hey. hip ecologically awake mm. area, even here, mm. right? Even here, it is mm. very hard to stand up to money and to development. Mm. So how about in areas where they haven't even gotten to develop, right? And where they're finding new vast reserves. Iran has just announced billions more barrels of oil found, right? Mm -hmm. So it's... On so many levels, like I said in that piece, you know, it's not just a, a black swan event. It's a sea of black mm. swans. It is. All I mean, on the news coming. this morning, you know, the coronavirus, mm. there's mm. another one that's sort of knocking us around. Yes, absolutely. And mm. it's creating a massive economic crash within China, which will have a knock-on effect all over the world. They produce 
many of our products, much of our medications, lots of things that people are not yet aware that are going to be hard to get. And of course, for the people in China, who knows what's going on there? They're basically, they've locked down nearly half a billion, with a B, mm. people. Mm. <laughs> basically locked down. There's no productivity going on. Uh, it's extraordinary, isn't yeah. it? Well, yeah. We haven't quite become so aware of it yet no. in this country, but... Well, we're not aware of coronavirus, but certainly after the fires, we were praying for rain for so long, and suddenly we have rain, and then I hear on the news it's declared a national disaster because we don't have the infrastructure in place. So everything just feels out of balance, and as much as you may, may try and ignore the climate crisis and what it means, you're going to continually keep bumping into it. Yeah. And so I find even myself wanting to shut down. Mm-hmm. You know, I come back to that thing of how, how do you actually stay open? Mm-hmm. Well, I think some shutting down and taking breaks mm. is necessary mm. to kind of regroup. It's like a mm. rest, like mm. anybody in some sort of triage is going to at some point need rest. Mm. And so for ourselves to regulate our own nervous system, mm. we may have to take little br- breaks, fasts from the news mm. uh, in order to stay awake in a more ongoing way. Um, But I think it's fair enough for us to find any ways that light our hearts, any ways that give us joy, and to really be living your bucket list, you know, and Mm. um, love everybody, love your people, love your animals, you know, just Mm. celebrate your days. And at the same time, letting in, bearing witness to what is going on on the planet. Because in that bearing witness, there's a little preparation that goes on, whether you're intending to or not. It doesn't take a wildly imaginative person to think there but for fate go I, Mm. right? Especially for us here in Australia, when we've seen our own country people standing on a a beach for hours and days, rather, around New Year's, uh, trying to get rescued from the from the fires raging, burning their homes nearby. So mm. it's, we don't need a, a, you know, a kind of a Hollywood imagination. Mm. We are seeing these images. We are being able to talk to people and hear their stories. And so to let all of that in as possibilities, those and many things that uh, we can't quite imagine, um, at the same time, we have to live our lives and mm. enjoy the time we have, mm. just as was always the case. You know, we always had a, mm. a do-by date. Mm. And um, so, you know, it's, it's, another, it's, it's another way of, it's another form of turning to the Dharma, really. Like mm. I said last night, it's, mm. it's letting go, it's acceptance, it's being joyful, being helpful, mm. being generous. And I, I guess there's that question that comes up around acceptance, isn't there, and, and um, bearing witness. And when in acceptance, or is there a part of acceptance that, that's, that feels like apathy? Is there a part of uh, bearing witness where we just mm. feel like we go to sleep? In oh, some like fiddling why Rome burns kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. What, at what point should we be taking action and what point... Is there a point to take action, actually? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, people, according to their nature, will Mm. act or not act. So Mm. some people, just like, I like to liken it to, like, a warrior caste, you know? Like, a warrior caste is going to keep going Mm. 
And even if it all looks, the battle looks lost, you know, like in American Indian culture, they'll say, you know, this is a good day to die, right? And they'll go out onto the battlefield. This is a good day to die. Now, another, another uh, type of person might prefer to just go to silence, mm. right? That's been my longtime sanctuary, to go to quiet mm. and into the more of a bearing witness mode, mm. right? And from a point of view of thinking the action is done, it's, mm. there's nothing much to do. Mm. And there is um, being quiet inside is not um, without a value. Mm. It's calming to others. Mm. Mm. And to yourself, but it just seems so um, such a more than strange, but it's just almost preposterous to me that you could find a place of silence and calm in the midst of chaos and and collapse that's happening all around. I wonder how do you find the image that? that sometimes comes up for me, and I'm nowhere near it, is the Vietnamese and the Tibetan monks who self-immolated and sat like Buddhas. Wow. You know, did yeah. you know that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, we, when I was growing up during the Vietnam War, we would actually see those images on our evening news. Mm-hmm. And it would have just happened. Mm-hmm. So we literally would be watching. And it was so, imagine me as a sort of 14 or 15-year-old mm-hmm. girl watching these images, watching these people sitting there like literally completely like a stone statue on fire. So obviously, I'm nowhere near that, but it is my inspiration in terms of the possibility of a human clarity and of a human stillness and of a deep and profound um, acceptance. Yes, and I guess it's also just that sense of we can go to that place. Like with this chaos around, you almost feel like you have to be propelled into the chaos or into some kind of activism or Or you can Or you can be the calm within the storm, mm-hmm. you know, and... So I, of course, lean into that and offer that as a, as a suggestion. But it's not for everybody. And I know some people's nature cannot go there. They can't just go to acceptance. They somehow feel it's morally wrong. Hmm. Um, and I, I get that, and I, I, do, I do honor that. Yeah, I liked what you were saying about the, the warrior class, that you want to just go down doing, 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 doing. Uh, I mean, in a sense, it's a different type of warriorship to go down being, 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 being. Isn't yes, it? It, that's to right. Hit the silence takes another type of courage. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And has a different offering as well. Has a different offering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering about, because you have interviewed activists, you know, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and what did you sort of, because they've been in these situations of great peril, maybe not so many black swans, but certainly, you know, facing. Mm. So I'm wondering what you learnt from them or what you picked, picked up from talking to them. Well, I, for one thing, I did see the power of people who worked for the greater good without a huge attachment to the goals working out like they just did it because it was the right thing to do and in many cases it looked like they would not prevail but they still kept going and they did it just with this love in their hearts not with this kind of demand that things are going to have to turn out their way in order for them to even feel like they could carry on Um, so as an example, of course, Desmond Tutu, who I interviewed before apartheid had ended, you know, he, he 
he was one of the ones whose whose work did prevail. And mm. and then of course the Dalai Lama. Tibet is still governed by the Chinese, and the Tibetan people uh, are not really uh, free to practice their religion, and in, in f- not really free in many other ways as well. Mm. But the Dalai Lama has cheerfully carried on all these many years, and it has sort of spread Tibetan views and culture all over the world. So there has been that kind of effect. Mm. Sometimes you see things in these ancillary ways rather than kind of head on. I, I really love that story, actually, because we tend to think of we're fighting for something with this attachment to an outcome. Yes. And there's Desmond Tutu that had that outcome, so he's well celebrated. Yeah. We had reconciliation of some kind in South yes, Africa. Yes. But there's the Dalai Lama yeah. who has had no such outcome in his life mm. but has kept going regardless. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed, yeah. And then um, Cesar Chavez, who was also one of the people I've interviewed, I've interviewed you know, maybe. This, this was from your book in the footsteps of Gandhi. Yes, but it? but it was yes. all part of a of a long twelve year process of of interviews, most of which did not go into the book. Only yeah. twelve went into the book out of about a hundred and something. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yes, yeah, Cesar Chavez, one of he was the founder of the Farmers Workers Union. He he fasted a lot um, for his cause. He fasted over the years, and it so um, wrecked his body that that eventually killed him because mm-hmm. um, he did very long fast, Gandhian-inspired. Um, and yet, you know, there was just this dedication. So yet a, another type of heart warrior, mm. right? You see all of these kinds of, I'd say, in terms of what I have learned um, in meeting all of those people over those many years, I mean, finally, at the end of the day, it's really, you do it because you're impelled to do it because it feels right, right? Mm. It just feels right. And, And that's why we do all of the actions we still do, Mm. even if we think there's not much that's going to change this course. Mm. Courage, it's a feeling like no other, let me tell you, yeah. Courage, in harmony with something other than your ego. Courage, the sweet belief of knowing nothing comes for free. Do you really want to know? About these lies? On my face Well each and every one Is testament to Catherine, we were talking about bef- before the break, just the fire. You were talking about the Vietnamese monks setting themselves on fire to make a point and the sort of state they were in. Now, you published your essay about a year ago, and you've been talking about this subject a lot and emailing people a lot and being in the fire of what this means. You're one of the first, I think there's maybe a few more now, but you were one of the first to come out to name it so 
starkly in terms of facing extinction. What have you thought about since you published that and how is it for you sitting in that? (laughs) Well, um, some of the themes I've been thinking about since the publication uh, that I find myself speaking about a lot, we've touched on acceptance today. And the other theme that comes up strongly for me is courage, and in particular moral courage. Um, And as you know, we three are going to be um, on a presentation for Nigara Institute later in March about these, this subject, acceptance and courage. Um, but moral courage is something I think will become quite challenged for a lot of people. A lot of our societal uh, cohesion is based on the levels of abundance we all have. And mm. how is it going to be when you know the trucks stop coming, if that is to be? Uh, when you can't get gasoline, you can't get types of food. Your child is hungry. Your children are hungry, rather. What, what behaviors are going to seem justifiable in those times? And, of course, we have lots of examples of this going on around the world right now with all the many hundreds of millions of people who are migrating and all kinds of strange and troubling behaviors are going on. I saw a report, I wrote about it in my essay, of, I saw a CNN report of a, a woman in a, um, she's in a refugee camp in Afghanistan, just in a tent, and she's selling her six-year-old daughter. She's sitting there with her son, little boy, and she's selling her six-year-old daughter to this older man who's claiming it's for his 10-year-old son as though he's buying a toy. I, I had a very bad feeling about what the reality of that was. Mm-hmm. And looking at that little girl's face as she's sitting there, probably with only a vague understanding of what is to come, you know, in her already difficult life, you know, these are the kinds of things that you, you, you witness and there's no place to hold it in terms of anything you can relate to, you know. I mean, I found myself thinking it's just better off that you would all just die instead than to have to live with any, any of us, any of you, to live with this. But life is powerful, and people clutch to it, and they will keep going and do things that they would not otherwise do if not pressed. Yeah, so that survival instinct. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... You know, what you say about what, this six-year-old girl, I, it reminds me when I was in Nepal and I met a social worker who was going around um, alerting parents that their children are being sold as sex slaves. And she was really alarmed because the parents knew. Yes. And it wasn't like she was... She right. thought she was spreading awareness, but yes. that awareness was already there. And I think, you know, with these survival behaviours getting more prevalent and, and encroaching more. So it's not just third world countries where there's a lack of food, but, but perhaps right in our neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. And you talk about moral courage. So I imagine I would never act that way. But what about the fact that we're in a community and it's not just our own moral courage we have to contend with, right. but the moral courage of our neighbour and perhaps people who are less fortunate or people who have a lot and may not be sharing that. That's right. Well, you know, traditionally in nonviolent strategy trainings mm. around the world, 
a community actually has to be trained in these matters, has to be trained in being morally courageous and trained in nonviolent behaviors. And that's why, for instance, in the civil rights movement, so many people had gone to the workshops and practiced so that they could, the African Americans would be able to sit at the counters, in the lunch counters, and people would come in and literally beat them and they wouldn't fight back. Oh, my God. And it was a, a, that has to happen with training and huge support of a community. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the strategy we're going to do necessarily, but in our own versions of this, mm. we should start thinking as a community. And we are, of course, talking about in this new formation of Resilient Byron, um, which we're having the first steering meeting tomorrow. These are the kinds of things we'll have to look at to offer in the community if we're going to be a resilient community. It's so interesting to think because you think you just naturally do the right thing and so will other people, but put us in the, in the fire, in those circumstances. Right. You have to have role-played it. Absolutely. You know? I mean, I, I think for myself, where I come to with this is I think, well, I, I do trust myself in terms of what I would and wouldn't do, but I also don't have children. I yeah. don't have anyone that I'm protecting. It's just yeah. me looking after me. And, yeah. But if I had to look after, you know, two, three little things. I know. I think that that's another level of this in that one might have a certain dedication to your own moral stance if it's just you. Yeah. But if it's your children, then it's sort of all bets are off for many, many people. It's like they'll do things they wouldn't just they wouldn't do just to save themselves. And that's going to be another yeah. line in the sand that people are going to have to understand. And I, I, something that comes up as we're talking about this is that it can sound like an extreme conversation that we're having. Um, but the truth is, this is coming. This is something. This is here. Yeah. Yeah. Ten, almost 7% of the population on planet Earth is right now locked down in various forms of quarantine and lockdown mm. in China, right? 7% of the world's population. Mm. And who knows what's going on? We have no way to know what's mm. going on there, what kinds of yeah. challenges and breakdown yeah. of social order is happening. And that will have ripple effects because of the global economy. Yes, of course. The role that China plays within yes, that. Yes, and yes. Let alone, <clears throat> excuse me, the spread of disease, which is mm. terrifying That's to right. yeah. a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. And politicians in charge of all the big economies are going faster and faster down the road of growth and right. yeah. uh, throwing away environmental um, regulations. And yes, regulations. absolutely. So yes. we're heading for something. Yeah. We're heading for something that's going to test us or wipe us out. We can't quite tell yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And we're and I feel that we're feeling it. You know, mm. there's so much anxiety and frankly depression running through you know, like veins through the whole world. Mm. And, you know, we're still living in this lucky country, as we say, even with the fires, you know, well, they've now sort of been put out pretty much. And um, we're back mm. to happy days, happy days mm. surfs up. But, you know, it is not to be assumed that this party goes on. I don't want to be a big man 
In a sense, and I do reflect on this regularly, I do feel I'm one of the lucky ones mm -hmm. that I am aware of what we're facing, but I have opportunities to still enjoy my life, to, to spend money, I have relative stability around me. I'm not frightened of the coronavirus yet. And I just wonder, in this particular point where people, it's kind of like, I don't know, the deep breath in before the problem or the calm before the storm. But in this moment, what, what is possible for us, do you think, Catherine, in terms of awareness? Well, of course, um, the awareness should include an emphasis on love, mm. right? That we're very, you know, these, these lives of ours were just a very brief, you know, a star at dawn, as the Buddha said, Right, a candle in the wind. Mm. It is. It is. It's always been the case that we take so much for granted, and it takes almost an act of extreme will to to really f fall into gratitude a lot, mm. right? Mm. And to really notice what's here. Like I said at the talk last night, in the experience of all this loss, let it be a reminder for what's left. To love what's left, right? Mm -hmm. Let it be a reminder to put your attention on on that which is still here to celebrate and to and to love. And you have to actually remind yourself of that because it's easy to be consumed in the fear, yes, and the expectation and the guilt. I mean, I should be doing something. Mm. And so those things can take up the mind space, you know, so the, these reminders right. to go into into the love, as you say. Yes. And what else do you think is important? Well, I think that it, as a, as a follow-on from that understanding, it's, a, it's, it's to see that the more stable you are and the more open you are and not in denial, right, mm. but just open and clear... It's a, it's a comfort to others. So, so I've, I've said recently that I always had a sense I was sort of being prepared for something, not that there was some big program or that there mm. was some, you know, God in the sky that was... Giving <laughs> you a mission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, nothing like that. But just that somehow the meanderings of my life were, were had a certain... Um, cohesion in terms of my own interest and what I would follow and, and that there was a, a kind of building up of a preparation which I had assumed might just be for my own dying. Okay. Um, but now it seems like it's also something bigger. It seems that there's been some other kind of uh, place for it as well because of the essay that I wrote and now so many people are contacting me about about their thoughts in this which has been such a privilege for me to read i mean mm. really amazing letters mm. of just brilliant poetic insight about mm. life 
Right. Yes. And what about this? Um, you said things in your life have been preparing you to take on this role. Can you share some of the things that you think have really prepared you? Well, um, I've had a lot of loss already. I've had I've lost a lot of people, and I have spent quite a bit of time in silence, which is always very insightful. Um, I think for anyone, if any, you can take anybody and sit them down in a in a silent context for a while, especially in a dharma context, not just in solitary confinement within a prison, <laughs> um, but although maybe there too, and, and plenty of people have woken up in, in that circumstance, I even know one, um, but, and I say wake up, waken up, woken up, what I mean by that is come to terms with what the real deep heart values are in this world. Okay. Um, so yes, the, 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 the dive into quiet has really facilitated for me a lot of, uh, a lot of calm. I just want to pick up that thought there because I know you in your earlier life were very influenced by Asian teachers. Yeah. But you let a lot of those influences go in terms of waking up. I'm wondering how you see that now. Like what's what's your feeling about what that means? Well, it's I bow to all my teachers, right? Because we learn and we grow along the way. We evolve in our own on our own <laughs> narrow path that is very unique to each of us. And so along the way I I began to realize that I'm not really fit for a system or a program. I seem to come to the limits of each and every one that I ever tested, even though there was plenty enough to, I always say, take the best and leave the rest. There was plenty enough within the system that was great for the time, just as when you went to school. Each of the grades was necessary for the next grade. And so you don't, you know, you don't get mad at the fifth grade because you moved on to the seventh grade, you know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> so it's that. I, I, I bow to all my teachers, all of that uh, that long slog of, of seeking and trying on different ideas, philosophies, and so on, and m many, many years of, of meditation practice back in the day. But now this is a much more free-form exper experiment. And now my my influences are actually more contemporary Mm. Um, among my friends, I learn a lot from my friends. This per person might have an incredible capacity for forgiveness and kindness. Another one, a kind of uh, brilliant poetic uh, ability to articulate. Another one, lets go easily. Another one, doesn't seem to be bothered by um, having to do without comforts and so on. All of those kinds of things, these are all my... Trainings, and as I told you recent, recently, Michael, I've really come to see that Leonard Cohen was maybe my greatest mentor of all, and I didn't really know that when he was alive, um, but I certainly see it now. And and the the quality that he brought you, that you felt through him, you were talking to me when we spoke about that, uh, being very awake to the world. Yes, he he was a worldly person, but he had a kind of um, sparkle that lived in the s stars as well. <laughs> and, um, and I loved that. You know, I loved how with him it was very light. And yet, as um, one of the movie stars who knew him described him, um, 
as also like a piece of heavy machinery as well, you know. <laughs> like, so there was a way in which he was very, um, I loved his freeform creativity and his honesty in his art. And that has become very high dharma to me, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, amazing. And I found it really inspiring, this idea that even though we're sitting in the fire right now, that we could all possibly wake up. And you've had a long history of being influenced. But I wonder if you could just give us some shortcuts, because we don't have a lot of time. <laughs> so what would be your biggest shortcuts if we want to use this opportunity <clears throat> right now of the fire that we're in collectively to wake up? What, what should we do? Let go and accept. Mm. Mm. Practice those two things mm. yeah. in little ways, right? D- different inconveniences, right? Here we arrived at the studio today. The air conditioning's broken. We're in a clo- enclosed space. We're all three sweating, right? Mm. Let go and accept this mm. is what it is. Mm. Are we not going to do the show? Are we going to have a hissy fit? No. Mm. You know, the show goes on. Mm. <laughs> and mm. so, mm. like that, we accept... And we say, ah, so. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, it's such a delight to have you in. And it's so lovely to have someone talking about the Dharma in terms of meeting these times, in terms of meeting the heat of these times and <laughs> keeping, keeping your feet, keeping your cool. So uh, thank you. I always love hanging out with you guys. Yes, and you. Thanks, Catherine. We'll have you in again. Okay. <laughs>